About 30 years ago, Mike Cohn was making his way through the mountains between Germany and France to meet up with a friend. It was cold out. So cold that by the time he stopped for a break, his body was literally shaking. Mild hypothermia. And while trying to warm up, Mike decided that he was going to invest in some kind of heated gear. But later on, when he found the heated gear, he didn't like it at all. It was the early days in the heated garment business for motorcycling. And according to Mike, the gear was plagued with issues. Everything from not keeping the rider warm enough to wiring shorting out. Even the connectors where you plug into your motorcycle burning the riders because it was getting too hot. And the controller, the unit that controls how hot the jacket actually gets, well, in Mike's mind, that was a real problem. Later, he was told that it was a repurposed controller from a heated blanket. Still, he wanted heated gear for himself. So he thought, well, why not design my own? So he set out with a friend to design his own controller, while his partner, Susan, a clothing designer from Nike, designed the heated clothing to suit their riding style. Now, the original plan was to make some good gear, good heated gear for themselves and a few friends. But by the time they were done, that controller that Mike and his friend made was so much better than anything else on the market that one of the leading heating clothing companies began selling Mike's controller connected to their heated clothing. What started out as a project for a small group of riders became a business. And eventually, Mike and Susan began selling their controller with their own line of heated gear that was designed to suit their requirements. That's what I sat down to talk with Mike Cohen about. This evolutionary story about heated gear and Mike and Susan's contribution to the advanced gear that we now enjoy in our industry. But the thing is, Mike is a rider, a really passionate rider. He loves motorcycles. He loves traveling by motorcycle, and he's done loads of it. So we ended up talking about motorcycles, the way things have changed, and not a whole lot about his heated gear. But I think through it, you're going to learn more about his heated gear through his ethos and the ethos driving the company than if we'd focused on the gear itself. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com uh, Mike Cohn, warm and safe heated gear. And... Um we make heated clothing mostly for motorcyclists, which is what we are. You've been riding for a long time. Where does riding start? Um, <laughs> uh, with a um, friend's Honda. Um, I think it was a Cub in Chicago when I was probably 15. The Honda Cub. Describe that. Oh, my God. It was a 50cc pre-helmet, and we used to get behind buses to stay warm. 
course, not thinking about uh, diesel fumes or anything else, but just trying to get the heat off the engine. You're right up behind the bumper with this thing to get that oh, to yeah. get the heat. Yeah, crazy. The stuff we do when we're young. The, the Honda Cub is. Um, I mean, it's a you know well-known motorcycle. It doesn't really look like modern motorcycles, though, does it? No, but I'm 74. Mm. So it was a few years ago. You're saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was probably the first Honda that came to America was the Cubs. Right. That, that's in the 60s, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, that was the, the the famous ad, you meet the nicest people on a Honda? Um, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I don't, I don't know when they started that, but it is what brought motorcycling out of the Harley mentality to, you know, regular people. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to motorcycling. You mean the Honda in particular? Are you talking about the advertising campaign? The advertising did? campaign. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so when you started riding, then it was it was Harley's really like this was just sort of just opening up into the Honda era. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean everything else was Harley's. Um, I have friend with one, and um, way too heavy for me to to handle, but I I was able to you know, watch him almost break his leg starting it. Because remember, the Kickstarters on those would often backfire and, right. and could, you know, break a leg. Um, you know, the suicide shifters were still around. My uncle had one of those. Uh, he tells tales of that. Uh, you don't. You know what a suicide shifter is, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. You've got to reach okay. down to shift with your hand. Well, you're not reaching down. You're just reaching to the tank. Mm -hmm. But you know how many of us have, you know, stuck our hand in the exhaust of the fairing to keep our hands warm in the winter? So we're riding with one hand doing eighty on the highway. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, you know, it it sounds horrible, but. I don't know if it really, you know, it's sort of like suicide doors in cars when they used to open the other way. I really, how dangerous were they over, you know, people just stepping out and getting hit by a car? So, you know, it's, it, it's crazy. But I remember, slightly off subject, I remember a guy who wrote um, articles for motorcycle magazines, did a lot of motorcycling and talked about uh, these motorcycles that were coming out with automatic shifts, how he never, he was never able to coordinate to be able to pull in the clutch, the handbrake, the footbrake, and downshift at the same time, which I thought was really weird. What do, what do you mean? He, he couldn't, that's just like a regular motorcycle. He, he couldn't do that at one time. Before he and started riding. No, he couldn't do that as a rider. And I remember him writing about that. And I thought that was the weirdest thing. Yeah. But there are, I, I don't know if today anybody's making a, a motorcycle with an automatic. But remember, they, there was a period where I think Honda or Yamaha came out with one that was an automatic clutch so you didn't have to shift the clutch and all those early 50 cc bikes 
and scooters. You know, you just turn and change gears without any clutch. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's not motorcycling. It's sort of like this thing with paddle shifting on cars. That's not a, a sports car needs a manual gear shift and a clutch. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think, I think a lot of this is automatics. Now, even for motorcycles, you mentioned Honda there. Honda has the Africa twin. They brought out with their, their DCT transmission, which is a dual clutch automatic system where you're getting on and twisting the throttle. It's a lot like your scooter, right? You just get on and you, and you twist the throttle and it goes through. And now this thing has gears in it. The Honda, the DCT system has gears and it shifts those so smoothly that you can't even tell that it's automatic. And, and I was just told the other day by someone in the know that, um, that, that race cars are all automatics now for this, for the reason that they're faster and smoother than what you can do manually. But, but I got to say, I, I'm in your camp. I, I really am. I, I like the clutch. The clutch does a lot of things for me. And certainly when you're riding in dirt or anything like that, I mean, you know, the clutch just in my mind can't be replaced, but what do you think is going to happen when we have to go electric? Well, wait, wait a minute. You got to step back. I mean, if Honda was so smart, why did they use tube tires on the brand new African twin? Two tires? Tube. Oh, tube. I think it's a two tires. Tube tires. Oh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a uh, there's arguments on, on both sides of that, isn't there? But really, uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I'm. You know, some some people like the idea of the, of the tube, and I don't know. That that that's another topic altogether. Yeah. Be caught in the middle of uh, Mexico with a tube and have to fix it when you can always put a plug in a tubeless. Uh, I mean, I've I've lived with that. And, uh, yeah, anyway, but the C7 was timed against the C8 uh, Corvette. The C7 was faster, even with a stick shift. Now, I'm not up on Corvettes. So, so what's C7, C8? C7 is, the, is not the mid-engine. It's the one prior to the mid-engine Corvette. The mid-engine Corvette has a paddle shift. But when it was taken to the Nuremberg ring, the C7 was faster mm. than the C8. So, yes, you're right on the track. But there's more than the track. It's, it's, and there's more to motorcycling than racing. There, there is a feel to motorcycling that shifting is part of. It, it's sort of like the uh, getting rid of downshifting, you know, and saying, oh, no, you should use your brakes more. I'm sorry. There's a feeling when you when you have to downshift that that deceleration and the way it hits your body, there, there's just something about it. And the same thing with shifting that that coordination of feel the the action being part of the bike all those things are lost if all you care about is the smoothness of of the shifting and how how fast the shifting can be it, it's it's lost i've had paddle shifters in cars um and an rx8 and then I got rid of it and went to a stick shift RX-8. And the feeling is so different uh, 
And the same, I, I don't know with motorcycles because they've never had an automatic one. And it's been a long time since I had, uh, you know, like I said, in the 60s, anything that was not uh, having a clutch on a motorcycle. I, I just can't imagine. It, it would be boring. I agree with you. I, I don't think that the riders like you and I are interested in having everything automated. I think what they're, the manufacturers are doing is trying to, in one sense, trying to lower that, that uh, bar level for entry. You know, a lot of people find motorcycling well, difficult at first. I, mean, I guess everybody finds it difficult at first. There's a lot to pay attention, a lot to do. It makes it easier. If you can remove the, the fear of the clutch, the whole thing of stalling. I mean, nowadays, how many people drive a vehicle that's a standard? You know, everybody seems to have 14%. Is that what it is? Yeah. That's not a lot. dropped over the last um, number of years. Now, I don't know if that's the whole thing. I know with the Corvette, it went from something like 70% to 14%. And, um, you know, from a financial standpoint, I can see it. But I don't, I don't agree with the argument. And that is that. Um, you know, it's faster, it's faster on the track, it's smoother shifting, all that nonsense. I think you're right. It's dumbing it down. Mm -hmm. But you have to understand, I was using a TRS 100 as a laptop in the 70s when people had no clue what a computer was. And, and to stay in touch with people, I carried an acoustic coupler and would have to strap it around a payphone to get, you know, online. I carried clips and a screwdriver to get into walls to connect to uh, phone lines. And, you know, I look at now I walk into a, a coffee place and granny is you know, doing a travel blog. <laughs> yeah, it's great. But can you write in binary? Can you modify something in binary now? No. Can you undelete something easily off a drive? Uh, no. You know, there's software. But, I mean, there there is certain excitement that comes with the rawness. And, you know, while... I'm down to only one motorcycle because of COVID. I got rid of my bike in Europe because I was paying storage and I got, got, you know, tired of doing that. Mm -hmm. And who, who the hell knows when this is going to end. Um, and I'm down to one bike, but I still have two cars and one's an MGB and one's a Corvette. And I'll tell you, I enjoy shifting in the MGB a lot better than the Corvette. There's just something about the feel of the clutch and the way it shifts that just excites me more. Now I have to remember you don't, you're, if you're moving, don't try to put it into first gear. It doesn't work, <laughs> but, but there is something about the rawness and the same thing with motorcycling. Um, there's something about, I don't know, about motorcycling that, that is raw. And if you 
dumb it down, you lose that rawness and all you're doing is writing this thing with a with the new music blasting out of it and loud pipes and and so what? That's not what motorcycling is about. It's not poise uh, being a, a poser. It, it's about the feeling, the pulling the G's in a in a in a curve. It's it's not knowing what's around that corner, but yet you got to be ready for anything around that corner. I get what you're saying, but I think some of it comes up if you if you really step back and look at it, it comes up it comes from where you grew up and how you grew up. So in other words, you you grew up with a clutch and you grew up with no internet. You you uh, are used to seeing the world a certain way. I might even say because I come from that era that you are privileged to have known the world before <laughs> before the internet changed everything for us. And now you can sort of lament those days and, and see the difference between the two. But if you're born in this age right now, if you're born now, my son goes out, he's, he's in his early 20s, he goes out and he test rides an electric motorcycle. He thinks it's fantastic. He says the power is unbelievable. You know, this yes. thing's great. There's a, there's a lot to okay. it. So for him, that is neat. Now, he, he can drive a standard. He, okay. he, he grew up um, riding a motorcycle, but... To him, it's 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 the norm. That's how things are nowadays. You know what I mean? So I mean, okay. to him, the motorcycling isn't necessarily the clutch. It's more about the feel going down the road, the wind blowing, you know, all over him and around his helmet. Those type of things. He he, he sees different things. Focuses on different things. You see what I'm, I'm saying? I grew up in Chicago when Chicago had electric buses. Mm -hmm. I understand the torque of electric because. The buses were all that way. Mm -hmm. The the elevated, the subways were all, and are still electric. Yes, incredible torque, all straight line. But don't forget, so was two-stroke. And I grew up in an era of two-stroke. I had a 750 Suzuki. But there's other things with two strokes that makes them, you know, the, the reason they didn't survive really. Oh, into no, now. no, I mean, no. You've got pollution, you've got yes. wear and all, yes. and all those things. Right? Yes, yes, yes. I'm just saying you, I grew up with that acceleration and I understand it. And um, I was visiting, I was, you know, I, I ride a lot in Europe or did. And I was in uh, Rotterdam with a friend and she had a um, two stroke. And, and, and every stoplight, she'd take off and here I am on my thousand CC GTS 1000. And I finally catch up with her at the next light. And, and that happened like the whole day. And she finally looked at me and said, what the hell? Why is this happening? And I said, because you're on a two stroke, you've got the torque and the acceleration I don't have off the line. If you listen to what Rossi was saying in one of his last interviews about the two-stroke period, the 500s, I mean, that, that was something he really missed was that acceleration mm -hmm. that you get. Also, the bike's two-strokes were lighter. Sure, yeah. Um, so, yes, th there's a lot of issues with pollution and noise and other things, but... You're right. You know, you go through these phases and, and what's going to happen with electric. 
I don't know, but Yamaha came out and said, oh, we now have a noisemaker for an electric motorcycle. The last thing we need. The last thing we need. And I'll tell you, I was on the coast in Oregon, and there was a woman with uh, her child, and the child was probably maybe six or seven years old. And they were looking, you know, you got to understand the GTS 1000 with the swing arm front end is an unusual bike. And they were looking at it. And as I got on the bike, the little kid put her fingers in her ears. That's why I won't have a loud bike. Mm-hmm. She's prepared for it because she's heard a bunch of motorcycles start up that yeah. are deafening. Yeah. You know, the thing is, the perspective really is what we're talking about here because you've been around enough years that you remember the old ways and you see the new ways without that perspective with the, with the, um, like I think of my son and, and people who are younger than him coming in, I always worry that if they don't listen to people who've been around longer, don't pay attention to those type of things, they risk losing really, you know, in the, in the long run, they, because if you grow up only knowing the internet, only knowing technology, the way it is now, um, I think there's a risk in, in losing out in, in just even like what, what you're saying, you know, the joy, the thrill of riding a motorcycle with a clutch, a gas engine, you know, all, all those things. Unfortunately, there's nothing anyone can do about it. That is life. That is progress. That is the way, you know, the world works, but it's just kind of sad. Well, it is. It's sort of like when Radio Shack died and, and actually prior to when Radio Shack died or Heathkit or... Fry's electric, you know, right now I'm trying to figure out where I can get a enclosure for some drives and I can't just go over to Fry's and, and, and look at what's on the shelf because they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that the reason we were so advanced in computers is because of things like Heathkit and ham radio and, and radio shack where you could just go in and buy a resistor if you needed it. Would you say we, um, you, you mean just the human race? The people, yeah. the human race, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that is why we were able to do what we, what we did. I mean, you know, how did anybody create an early Apple or early Emzai uh, or any of the other Moro? I mean, if you, you couldn't just walk over and and get some resistors and transistors and other things that you needed. There was no Amazon, you know, and it's much more difficult now to be creative. I I don't even mean because of COVID. I mean, because these parts, you you just can't walk over somewhere and say, you know, I want to buy a handful of, of, resistors and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not that easy, but getting back to motorcycling, maybe this is why so many people buy older bikes. Maybe they're hoarding them for when electric comes. I I don't know. I I've, I've looked at electric bikes. The problem is the range um, for me because I'm, I'm not a day rider. You know, when we go, uh, we, we go for a month, two months, three months, you know, we're, we're traveling. Um, 
it's changed. Europe has changed because of the Schengen Agreement. But we used to leave a bike in Europe and and go ride from from France through Spain, go to Morocco, come back, head over, you know, to uh, Provence and then into Italy and then into Croatia and into, you know, Albania. This was what we did in the summers. And then, you know, in the winter, we'd go down Mexico to El Salvador, Guatemala, and take, you know, weeks and weeks, you know, doing it. Um, electric bike isn't going to give me that kind of range mm -hmm. to, to do those things. So I don't think we're going to see the death of the, of the gas engine. And I'm not sure we're going to see it with cars either. I think all these excitements about, oh, we want everybody to be an electric car by a certain age is a bit absurd. Um, and in this country, we see pushback all the time. It, it may happen in Europe. I doubt it's going to happen here. I think what's going to happen is there'll be a pushback on that at some point. Things have changed, though, as, as far as um, battery technology. There's no doubt about that. And now, we're, you know, I've, I've had people on the show that have ridden their electric motorcycles great distances, some in Europe, uh, South America, even across the U.S., uh, doing more, more recently doing the... Um, the transcontinental trail with an electric zero motorcycle. So, I mean, I mean, people are doing this, they're finding ways to, to charge these things. And, and I think that's all part of an evolving new technology. You know, th these things get worked out and same as cars, you know, they've, they've got the ranges now that pretty incredible ranges, you know, 300 kilometers. And, and recently uh, the, the couple that I had on talking about that zero riding, they, they were into hydro uh, generation. They, they did uh, refitting of hydro generation plants and and what he was saying was his his thought on it is that even if everybody switched over now, gas cars, I mean, you know, to, to renew the whole fleet will take some 20 years. So if everybody started the switch now and there wasn't another new gasoline car sold today, that the electricity is there for it. The infrastructure will be there for it. We'll, we'll actually handle this. And with our battery capacities being what they are, and this this push by governments and um, things like that to, to push people into these electric vehicles, I, I'm not sure is it's not going to happen, you know. And I, I, I don't want to get into our conversation about this with you because I want to talk about you and, and, and your riding and, and your business. But it, um, it it's possible, I think, in in my mind, that we could find ourselves some way, someday, not too far in the future, walking into a showroom of a motorcycle shop and seeing nothing but electric offerings and, and in particular as the charging system, because I think that it's not only the range, it's the charging, you know, you don't want to sit somewhere and charge for an hour, but these zeros are even set up that people are riding a day. Now they're, they're, they're minding it, but they're riding the day and then charging at the end of the day. Well, that, that kind of solves a lot of problems right there. Well, that's true, but let, let's understand the distance between Portland, Oregon and San Diego is about the same. It's less than the distance between Paris and Athens. Mm -hmm. When we're talking America, we're talking distances. Yeah, big distances. Now, I, in Oregon, I would ride from Portland down to Columbia to Biggs Junction, go over the mountain, and I am out of gas. I come into a town and I have to find somebody to give me gas out of one of those um, credit card um, 
gas pumps. Right. <laughs> okay. That could be what's going to happen with electric. Um, and, you know, is there going to be an elect a, a place for me to charge when I'm in the back areas of Eastern Oregon? But I will throw this at you, and then we can get back to talk about heated clothing. I'm in, in France. I am, um, this is so typical of France, though. But I'm in France. I'm in a town called Seas, which is wonderful because it's, it's, right on the connection of a number of things. No, I apologize. That wasn't where I was, but I was going up the mountain and I was running out of gas. And I get to a town, um, Valdezar, and there's a gas station, but it's like five o'clock and the gas station is closed and it takes a credit card, but it only takes a card, the blue credit card, a French credit card. So I'm trying to figure out what to do. So I go to the police station finally. Um, and he says, oh, yeah, he's closed. He won't be open for two days. It's like, what? <laughs> so I finally convinced them that it won't take my credit card. And a local doctor who the, the police send with me um, pump, pays for my gas and I give him money. And, and while I'm there, other people are coming there trying to get gas, uh, three women on motorcycles stopped because it's a major motorcycle trail. And what, you know, if it's hard enough to get gas, I can't imagine what it's going to be when people have to start having electric in, in places where, you know, people don't think about it. It happened to me in Idaho. And thank God the guy was pro biker and he opened it up and, and gave me gas. But when a car came, he said, screw him. I'm not giving him gas. And went back and had dinner. Yeah, but, but the thing is, though, if you look at the charging stations that are around now, they are unmanned or unpersoned, if you want to be politically correct. There's no one there. They're, they're set up in parking lots. There's one in the town close right. to us. They've got uh, six chargers, I think, um, Tesla chargers there. Wow. And, and there's, there's no one there. So you just have to go and plug in. And the other thing is, if you think of the delivery system, the delivery system for electricity, it's already there. It's always there and it's always feeding and always refilling, so to speak. Yeah. Whereas you have no, to wait I mean, for a, a fuel truck. You, you know, may so, be right. You know, it's but, a, but when, you know, you're lucky. I've never been to a place that I haven't, I have seen more than two charging, um, I was at New Seasons recently, and there were two there. Our local uh, Whole Foods, I think, has two. Um, and so, you know, and they're designed for cars, not for motorcycles. I, I don't I don't really know. But, and then, you know, I've been places where I've ridden, and I'm, it's like in the Siskiyous. It's pouring. It's cold. I'm still plugged in to keep warm while I'm pumping gas and it takes what five minutes to pump yeah. a tank of gas Yeah, I know. and how long it would it take to recharge and yeah. I'm in the, in the wet cold, you know, and, uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors. It's going to happen just like modern computers have happened, but you know, I'm not saying I'm happy with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I really am, 
sorry, I can't just walk over to a radio shack and buy a part I need, you know, a resistor or a diode or something to, to prototype. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, this is totally off topic, but I have a couple of, of good friends that they built an entire business on repairing things. A lot of televisions, they were authorized by Sony to repair televisions, VCRs, things like that. They literally closed up shop about 10 years ago because the business just died. There is nothing to repair anymore. No one is repairing their TVs. It used to be people would spend, you know, $800 on their TV. And when something go wrong with it, often there's power surges, you know, and they've got these switching power supplies that go in them. They bring them in and, and that was a good business for them, but it's all gone. Nobody repairs them anymore. Yeah. I, I we had a, a printer, an HP printer that was doing some weird stuff and, you know, it's a wide printer, you know, because we need to do big drawings of circuits, you know, People don't understand we're not just a pretty face. We we actually design our stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we were having a problem. I put in a new head. It still was the problem. And I went over to get some new cartridges at Staples. And he says, you know, we've got one here. You know, uh, Epson, you know, it's better than what you've got because it's newer. Yours is six years old. And it's 150 bucks. I'm going, it's $75 for the head. And then the ink cartridges, you're right. Here, take all this stuff back and I'll buy that. Oh, well, I know. It's, uh, well, anyway, don't get me started on that too. I mean, it drives but, me nuts. The, 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 uh, the whole thing of not repairing, it's, I think it's a big problem that we have now. Um, building things even. I mean, look at your your computers and things like that that are built not to be repaired. They're built in ways that you actually cannot take them apart without breaking them. I mean, to me, it's 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 crazy. It it is, and it's really sad. But what's cool, if we want to talk about what we make, okay. So the beauty of the internet is this. We use a chip for all our remote heat trollers, right? Mm-hmm. And people have copied it or tried to copy it in, in thought, but not in design. We use software to control it. Okay. So we made a 7.4 volt heat layer system that could be used on and off the bike. And while there is somebody promoting, oh, my God, you can use our controller at 12 volts. You can use any controller with 7.4 volt close at 12 volt. The problem is if the knob gets turned, you're going to fry the person. Ours won't do that. We designed a multi-voltage controller so that you could be on battery. So I'm walking around Rome and I'm on battery. It's cold. It's wet. And I'm staying warm in my heat layer shirt, right? Get on the motorcycle, plug it into 12 volts. Everything is fine. It's safe because of the way we designed the software. I take off, stops working. Pull over, turn it off, turn it on. It's working. Take off, stops working. I know exactly what's wrong. We had, I had said to the programmer, set an endpoint at 14 
and a half volts. Mm. What I didn't, because I had never heard of a motorcycle charging system putting out more than that. Yeah. So we get down to the Amalfi Coast and I pull out, I always carry a, a clamshell multimeter. I do not understand people who do not carry one. It's like having a pressure gauge for your tires. It's every tank bag I have on every bike has one. I check the voltage coming out of my charging system. It's at 15.25. Now, happened to be another GTS 1000 with us. So I checked his, same thing. So I send a Skype message to our programmer who's in Kentucky and said, uh, can you modify this line of code so that now it's at 18 volts? Yeah, no problem. He emails me the software. I plug a thing into the prototype and plug it into my computer. I run the software. It updates the software in the controller. I then test it. Boom. Everything works fine. Very nice. Yeah. That is incredible because yeah. before, no matter where we were, if we wanted to change, we had to change the circuit board, have either a prototype board made um, or a 3D printed board. UPS to me, wherever I was in the world, and, you know, we're now looking at two weeks. This mm -hmm. was three hours. Right. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is it's amazing. Well, when it comes to, to traveling, though, by motorcycle, what are you getting out of that? Or what are you looking for when you're going to different places? Oh, freedom. Freedom. I mean, one, you can stop wherever you want, especially, let's say you're in the mountains and, and you're on a switchback and, and you see this view and you want to stop and have lunch. You just pull the bike into the dirt. If you want to park, you well, in most civilized places, you just pull up on the sidewalk, you know, and park. Um, but also, it's it's a feeling on the road. With a motorcycle, you feel the G's of a of a turn. You 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 feel the air. You know, one of the things I'd like to do in the winter is I would lift my face mask. And the cold air would hit and just suck the air out of your lungs. <laughs> I mean, there there is just something about it that that I, I don't know. Maybe people who fly, I always figure that's the same kind of feeling. Yeah, I, um, I get a lot of people mention that. I had a sailboat on the Columbia for a short period of time. And... I had a friend who really knew how to sail and that's the kind of feeling I would get with that boat also because there's nothing to stop you, you know, other, well, barges, but still at, you know, if, if you had open space, you could do whatever you wanted. And, and in a way, motorcycling is like that, except of course, you know, you got to stay on your side of the road. I don't know. You know, I, I, there's a little, in Europe, there's a lot more respect for bikers. Um, I remember one time 
I was in some village and it was starting to rain. So I pulled the bike. It was a Monday. And Mondays uh, in France, stores are usually closed either all day or part of a day. And so I pulled it into the entryway of a store that had a, a awning to cover the bike. And they were closed. And all of a sudden I noticed somebody was was there. And so I ran over and said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'll, I'll move the bike. She said, no, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And, and that attitude or you're in a mountain and you got somebody and this, this happened a couple of times, you know, there was, there was a cop car in front of me and there was some woman with her granny in the car in front of him and I couldn't pass them both. I mean, it wasn't an issue of it being a French cop. It was just, I, I couldn't see far enough. Well, the cop puts on his, his, his lights, pulls the woman over. I see this arm come out from his window, waving me on. I go and I look back in my mirror and he pulls out. He only pulled her over so I could go around. I was coming up from Nogales. Uh, no, from Guaymas to Nogales in Mexico. And there's a four lane with a verge in the center. And I'm following a pickup truck and we're both doing about maybe a hundred. And of course the speed limit is probably 40 or something. And there's a cop and I see him and I slow down and he passes me, pulls the pickup truck over. I come up to him. And I point to myself and he just nods and salutes me and waves me on. <laughs> that is why I motorcycle. That is part of, part of it. The part of the joy of motorcycling, you know, people saying, Oh, um, pull your bike in next to, you know, don't, don't park back here. Really? Why not? Because nobody can see the bike. Pull it over there, you know, next or to where you're staying or inside your room. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's incredible. And you look at them and say, wait a minute, if I pull it through the lobby, it's a motorcycle. They say, oh, no, we have a bunch of Harleys. They parked it over by the swimming pool. Don't worry about it. We're going to take just a short break while I tell you about a couple of things. Stick around. we got a lot more coming up after this. Back in uh, March 2019, we had a couple on the show that uh, they'd traveled the world two up on a KTM 640 adventure. It was Heidi and David Winters. Now, it was on that trip that David broke his wrist while he was riding. Anyway, um, so David's trying to ride this bike because he's the rider of the bike. Heidi's the pillion. He's got a broken wrist and, and he's trying to use a throttle lock. And I think he had the one that, that sort of screws onto the end of the handlebar. But anyway, it was a real pain for him. Drove him nuts. When they got back, he was set to find a better throttle lock. Couldn't find it. So he decides to make his own, which is what he did. He invented the Atlas throttle lock. It is an amazing, beautifully crafted piece of equipment that clamps onto your handlebar. It's got two buttons on it. 
they both work in a firm, positive way that give you the just the full feedback. It always makes me think of Apple products because it gives you the full feedback that you want when you're engaging or disengaging. It is a beautiful piece of equipment. And if you don't know what a throttle lock is, it doesn't lock your throttle so that someone doesn't steal your bike. It holds your throttle position so you can relax your hand and wrist and arm. And it, it makes riding so much nicer. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. If you ride an adventure bike, your foot pegs should be important to you. For comfort on the road, for grip on the dirt, they need to be ultra tough, yet designed specifically for how you ride. IMS Products has been making motorcycle parts since 1976. And over those years... IMS has become well-known in the race pits uh, around the world because racers want the best. And now us adventure riders can have that too through IMS products and their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. They're designed specifically for your style of riding. They've got different models to choose from. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. As far as travel goes, world travel, what, what sort of traveling have you done? Oh, my God. I, I don't know where to begin. I kind of thought you were going to say that. You know, um, Because you just keep throwing these stories out there from all over the place. Yeah, because we have. Um, my first trip, um, actually, I have a T-shirt. It's 13 countries trying to remember what it says i've got it in the other room but it was something like 13 countries seven weeks twelve thousand miles and friends of mine in europe said wait a minute uh, my friends in wales were quite proud of me because i put wales as a country um but they said how can you go that far in europe i said i got lost a lot and um and that was true but it's, it's, you know, you got to understand the distances in Europe are small and, and you, you change languages and cultures constantly, but to go from France to Spain and then Spain to Morocco and in Morocco, I'm trying to remember, was it Morocco or Tunisia that we were trying to get into Albania, uh, into Algiers, huh? Tunisia, yeah. So, I mean, the cost is not cheap. Taking the ferry from uh, France to uh, Marseille to Tunisia is not cheap. I mean, you can fly a hell of a lot cheaper. But, you know, I want to take the motorcycle over and I want to ride through it. Um, and why? Why not? I mean, it's incredible. Um, I really, we were hoping to go into Algeria, but uh, uh, the military wouldn't let us cross. Um, we were, Albania, uh, that was incredible. People were so nice. Uh, Greece, um, it, I mean, it's Romania. We were in Romania right after Ceausescu was murdered or killed or whatever. Um, 
we were in Romania and, and um, there was like nothing. I mean, it was so hard to find unleaded gas, it, the holes in the roads. Uh, but we were in um, uh, Turgomaresh, which is kind of the center of the Gypsy Roma area. And, and they would come up and look at the bike with their hands behind their backs. And, and they would just look at it. They would never touch it. Uh, we met a woman who said, look, at, uh, if, if you, I'm not going to be there. If you want, you can stay in my apartment. Not a problem anywhere. It was, it was incredible. Went up to Brand, Brashov, all these places. And you're going down the road and you come up to horse-drawn carts, cars, two-stroke cars off the side of the road, people working on them, the men working on them, the women having a picnic. I mean, why not? This is, this is fantastic. And so much easier on a motorcycle. So much easier on a motorcycle than in a car. As far as continents that you've been to, which ones? Have not been to South America. Have not done New Zealand or Australia. Other than that, pretty much everywhere. Haven't done Russia. Russia was uh, too much of a hassle to get a, a visa. Um, but other than that, yeah, I've, we've motorcycled in Asia uh, and um, uh, Europe, North Africa, not, not Central Africa, um, but North Africa a couple of times. Um, Eastern Europe a number of times in different periods. Uh, and that's, that's one of the problems. You know, people go, well, why haven't you been South America? Because the world is dynamic. So going to riding in, uh, let's say, Romania or Hungary or Poland 20 years ago is not like going there now. And, but yet going there now is also amazing. So you return to these places because they change all the time. They change all the time. So it's yeah. never the same experience sort of thing. Never the, no, but yet it's still a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. um, when we were in Albania, the roads, the first time the roads were horrible. And we found out later it's because the EU was spending a lot of money uh, fixing them. Um, it, you know. It, it's Mexico. God, I don't know how many times we've been in Mexico. And sometimes there's gas. Sometimes you're getting gas out of the back of a pickup truck. Um, you never know. Is, uh, is this like a yearly thing you're doing where, where you're, where you're oh, going on, we on did vacation it. sort of thing? No, no, it's not vacation. It's life. It's life. So you, you've been on the road for continuous periods of time then? We were on the road eight years. Eight years. At one time. Mm -hmm. But we started... Um, I started writing earlier without Sue and part of that was nice in Europe because I could motorcycle camp. Um, it's harder when you have two people on one bike. Um, but we went 22, 23 years every summer we would spend, uh, riding in Europe and then in the winters, uh, not every winter, but most, we would ride through uh, uh, Mexico. I would um, have a routine. 
where I would, right before Christmas, ride down from Portland over the Siskiyous. I understand Siskiyous passes about five, 6,000 feet in the winter. Um, and then get to Red Bluff, California for the night. I would have extra gloves, extra boots, all those things. And I would mail the wet stuff back to Portland. And then I'd continue on down through California and San Diego. And Sue would get the wet stuff, hang it all up, and she'd fly down and meet me in San Diego. And then we'd take off down to Mexico. And that's what we would do every winter. And then sometimes she'd fly back from Mexico and I'd ride back or, or you know, uh, we'd both come back together. Uh, it just depends on what was going on at the time. Uh, Europe, I would get there usually in April. And it depends on where the bike was stored. I was really lucky for a lot of years not to have to pay for storage. And um, in April, uh, and start riding, and usually we would leave mid-October. And then the Schengen Agreement happened. And if you're familiar with the Schengen, U.S. is not part of Schengen. We're only allowed to spend our money there three months of the year. And then we have to be gone three months. So we cut back on our traveling there. But while we were there, we're testing our equipment, testing our controllers, testing our clothing, making modifications. Um, Sue can draw a pattern. All she has to do is take paper to a window and she can hand draw a pattern. And, and as long as I have access to my computer, which we carry with, I can modify um, soft, uh, the hardware. And then we, we, we would manufacture in Portland. And the clothing, when we finally had to get into the clothing, see, there's a... Well, well, well hang on, hang on. Let, let, Mike, let, let's go back here. I, I want to know, I want to hear the, 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 the creation story. So in, in the winter of 1993, can you talk about that? Yeah, that was, I'm trying to remember, I think it was October I was heading to visit a friend in Germany from France. And I was going over the uh, mountains the, in Alsace, and I was freezing my butt. My, you know, stomach muscles were shaking. I had socks over my gloves to keep my hands warm. Um, and I, after that trip, I came back and I said, "I got to get heated clothing." And Almost immediately, I looked at what they had, and I said, "This is junk. You know, this is this is people who one don't ride, and two don't know anything about designing." Um, so, I looked at what there was, and and Sue was working for Nike at the time, and there as a clothing engineer. Sue is your wife. Yeah, my partner, and. Uh, she was making a lot of different clothing and, and understood fit and finish and, and function. And so she came up with a design for a heated jacket liner that I wanted. I wanted something tight because I wear leathers. I tour in leathers. And um, 
I wanted something that had no bulk, that let the the heat elements do the job. And then with a friend, we came up with the controller. And what we did was we never promoted the jacket liner. Friends saw it because I was riding in it, but I never showed it to anybody in business. And at the time, we started selling to Gerbing the controller. So, so hang on. So what you did was you designed a new controller. The controller right. was, was the thing that you so really had the issue with. The controller, no, both. The clothing was way too baggy. It was way too bulky. It wasn't heating properly. The controller was a pulse wave modulation that modulated on a one-minute basis. So it would heat up for a minute, and then you'd sit for another minute, basically. It would cool off. So you get hot, cold, hot, cold. Yeah. And it was using a mechanical switch. Like a relay. Yeah. A 555 relay. Anyway, so, you know, I'm coming out of a background of electronics, computers. I owned a cable and connector company. So it was using an SAE connector. An SAE connector is what you see um, with a um, battery tender. Sure, typical automotive connector. Exactly. Highly inefficient. If you notice, they're split. Both sides the metal has a split in it. In the connector, yeah. In the connector. Because when you push it in, it has to expand, but the rubber has to be strong enough to bring it back. Mm -hmm. Also, the contact area is very minimal. So they would get hot if you ran too much power through them. They would not unplug easily. They would not plug easily. If you tried to get them to plug easily by weakening the rubber, then it wouldn't hold very well. There were a lot of problems with it. So at first, to me, it was just, I wanted something for me. And I said, okay, let's make 500. 500. And Controls. the first 60, right, the first 60 were actually um, – a etched board that a local Portland company did for us as a prototype. Okay. And the, you're, talking, you're talking about the circuit board itself. That, that the was circuit etched. board itself. Yeah. They were hand soldered by one of my uh, cable employees' wives on her kitchen table. So we, we did those. And then I said, okay, let's do 500 boards, regular boards. There'll never be a need for any more than that. And those 500 sold out in a month and a half. It's word of mouth. Um, so I said to Gerbing, look at what you got here is really old technology. Why don't you sell this? So he started selling it. And what we did for him was we said, okay, he said, help me with the wire because if it crosses, it, it starts to melt. So we said, look, it's because you're not using the right overmold. So we fixed that. Okay, hold on. So you're, you're, first of all, let me just oh, okay. go back to the controller. With the controller, what you did is you changed it from a mechanical switch, which is what was on the market then, right. to um, a, a digital switch, I guess. You're, no. You're, oh, it wasn't no. digital, but it, but it was solid state. 
Yes. Okay. Very good. So Thank you, change, you. You change it to solid state. Now what you're talking about right. is, is the wires, the heating elements in the in themselves in the jacket. If they cross, right. because they short. we felt if they sold more jackets, they would sell more controllers, right? Mm -hmm. So we'd help them with the jacket design, made the jacket better. They would sell more jackets and they would sell more controllers. How did you get around the issue with the crossing the wire and shorting it out? Oh, well, it's called panelization. Sue came up with a way to panelize the wire and I came up with a better overmold for the wire. I mean, it's just simple stuff. So you're actually manufacturing the wire? No, 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 no. We're just telling the, the manufacturer how to do it. So you're ordering a certain wire, you're telling them to build it to well, these specs and we're use this for a case. Whoever he was ordering it from, I think he was ordering it from um, Deco, Deco, Deco. And we just said, look at this is what you, you need to order. You don't want to order what you're ordering. You need to order this specification. Mm -hmm. And this, and then we started ordering the copper wire with modifying the, the SAE connector in different ways to try to get it to work properly. And eventually after a number of years, three or four years, we said that the, you're never going to solve this problem. And we came up with using the coax connector. Okay. So, so let me just go look at that. That SAE connector, that's your typical, like maybe you could, a lot of people recognize as a, as a trailer plug that you plug in together. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about here is, is the reason it's heating up is it's getting, it's, it's creating resistance because the connection is not solid. So the resistance creates heat and that's where you're running into all these problems. That's what Correct. you're solving. Okay. Right. So we, and we had heard that in some cases, people were having the connectors melting. You got to remember, this is all kind of at the beginning of heated clothing, but we really were not in the industry. We were just doing the controllers kind of as a side thing to our cable and connector business and to give me an excuse to ride all over the place <laughs> and write it off, you know? So we then went and said, okay, um, Sue and I talked about this and said, we either have to get into the clothing business or we might as well just quit doing this. And we decided to go into the clothing business. And the first thing we did was a prototype of a vest. And I showed it to a few of our friends and they said, no, we don't want this. And I said, but Gustavo, you're wearing a vest. He said, yeah, I'm wearing a vest because I can't wear what you're wearing. We want what Sue's been making for you with the stretch panels and tightness and the whole thing. I said, oh, okay. So we did that. And uh, a guy named Rob, can't remember his name, who bought Eclipse came to us and wanted to, us to do the jacket for him, private label. And then they flaked out. Um, but we were able to dump all the stuff on eBay. And it just kept going from there. And Sue, because of her Nike background, knew a good manufacturer in Thailand. And since we like hanging out in Thailand in the winters, um, why not? You know, it's a good place. People were nice. And so we started having them make the product for us. And uh, being bikers, we spent the summers testing everything. 
and modifying it. I mean, the legacy controller is on its 13th version. And the remote, which is only about five years old, is just on its software is in its 12th version. They're changing the stuff all the time. All the time. All the time. I mean, there's, there's a company out there looked at, at AIM. Um, and what they're selling is the same thing that was being sold by their grandfather uh, 20 years ago. Describe your system then. So, so tell me, what, what does it look like and, and how does it work? Okay. So the legacy, legacy controller, all controllers are pulse wave modulation. Okay. People go, oh, it's a rheostat. No, you can't use a rheostat. It's a pulse wave modulation. And how that is done, in our case, we have one that uses a very sophisticated FET IC. And the other is that uses a circuit, uh, a program that is based on the Millennium Copyright Law. It's protected. And that controls it. Um, the legacy you plug in to the battery harness and then plug into the liner and, and you can put the control where in wherever you want. We do not recommend in your pocket because then you're trying to change it while you're going down the road. It's kind of silly. We recommend Velcroing it to the tank or tank bag somewhere. You can reach it easily. Mm-hmm. The remote came out of someone saying to me, isn't there some other way to have a dual controller and not have all these wires? Now, I've been thinking about it for years on how to do something like that, but the technology hadn't come along yet. Now the technology was there. I could do it. I could take a remote control that could be totally free from your body and the receiver that controls the temperature controls the flow of the temperature, what plugs into your bike and plugs into the jacket would sit in the pocket of the jacket or the pants or the shirt or whatever. And then if you had multiple bikes, you could move it between bikes because it's already in your jacket and you wouldn't forget it at home because it's already in the heated jacket Mm -hmm. and you would only have one plug because it's already in the heated jacket plugging into both the glove plug and the heat for the jacket. Now, let me step back. We've brought 25 Inventions or innovations to heated clothing for motorcyclists. Of those 25, probably all of them have either been copied or attempted to be copied. So when we see what's out there and then hear about its failures, it's because they think they know what we're doing. And in fact, they don't. They don't really understand the material we're using or the fabric we're using or the way in which we're running the wires. So 
the difference between us is that Sue has the background in the clothing. We have the background in the motorcycling. And we have the background in the electronics. These guys don't have those things because to them, it's just a business. To us, it's our lives. That was Mike Cohn from Warm and Safe Heated Gear talking from his home in Oregon. His website is warmandsafe.com. That's N in the middle is the letter N, warmandsafe.com. We've got that link and some photos of Mike in the show notes as we do with all of our episodes here on adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, the listener, thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, if you liked what you heard just now, and you might know somebody else who would like it as well, we'd love it if you'd share it. Share it on social media or, or tell somebody when you when you talk to them about it. We'd love it if you spread the word around, let other people know about Adventure Rider Radio who may not know about it already. The other thing you could do is um, if you can drop by iTunes and give us a five-star review or wherever you find your podcast, wherever you're listening to this if you can give us a review because that helps other people find the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Oh, and and one other thing, if I could ask, I know I'm asking a lot here, but um, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support, which means we need your support. Just check it out. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your motorcycle. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our raw show. That's the other show that we do. Comes out once a month. It's all on our website. Drop our website, adventureriderradio.com. You can click on support. You can also look at the raw show there. Anyway, get it there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>